The book of Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel between 540 and 530 BC. Daniel was among the first group of Israelites taken into captivity by Babylon after the siege of Jerusalem. The book follows Daniel and his fellow refugees as they strive to remain obedient to God in a foreign land. Daniel and his friends prove to be wise, capable leaders and are elevated to positions of influence by the king. A series of cryptic dreams come to the king in his sleep, and Daniel, being near to the throne, interprets them with God-given understanding. These dreams depict Babylon and the numerous world empires to follow, humbled under God's forthcoming kingdom. Following is a short story of Daniel's friends as they face orders to worship a false god. They refuse and are thrown into a furnace, but God miraculously protects them from the flames, displaying his power before the king. Through God's power and Daniel's faithfulness, the king's heart is gradually changed. After initially resisting the meaning of his dreams and visions, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself, acknowledging Yahweh as the one true God. At the end of the book, Daniel has a dream of his own, depicting four great beasts set against God's throne. A figure described as the Son of Man defeats them and is given authority by God to rule over a kingdom made of all nations and peoples. The book of Daniel draws out the tension between Israel's current opposition and the hint of God's forthcoming hope. Out of this hope, future generations can find the motivation to continue in Daniel's faithful example as they await God's kingdom. All right, do we have any baby boomers in the room? A few of you guys, you're like, is, are we allowed to actually say that? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I heard from my parents is that one of the defining moments in the baby boomer generation is the moment when you heard John F. Kennedy was assassinated. If you talk to people growing up in that particular time, they can often tell you with great specificity the day, the hour when they heard the news that the president of the United States had been killed. For my generation, I'm the oldest millennial around, so if you ever just need to categorize me so you can dismiss me, I'm a millennial, all right? Um, no, we don't do that, do we? No. I, but but the, the defining kind of moment of, of older millennials' generation life is, where were you at 9-11? Uh, do you remember, with great specificity, the, the events? I remember waking up to my radio alarm clock. And kids, I'll tell you what that is someday. Uh, it's a thing of the ancient past. And, and rather than there being music or a bunch of joking like there normally was in this station, all of a sudden these normally jovial hosts were talking with a, with a sense of intensity about the World Trade Center and the buildings falling down. And I, I went out of my dorm room and, and I looked down and there were these end lounges where the TVs were at our college. And there was a whole bunch of people huddled around the television watching this newscast. And, and as I, I go there, I, the second building fell. Like watching an action movie, only it was actually real this time. And I went to chapel a couple hours later as I'm thinking, wait a second, I just filled out that like, draft card, you know, that every male has to fill out when they're 18 years old, thinking, uh, is this going to change my life in a way that I wasn't expecting? And, and chapel was required at Northwestern College, but there was a few more people in the, in the room that day, and, and actually Dean Paulson, our pastor at Chester Park, was in charge of chapel, and he introduced a local church pastor. And he got up there, and his job in that particular moment was to provide a ballast for a whole bunch of shaken college kids on how do, we know, how do we navigate our way through this uncertain day, time, weeks, months, years? Because the world changed from that moment forward. 
And I remember the local church pastor got up and he had scrapped his previous message that he had prepared and he, he brought us to the book of Daniel. And he proceeded to tell story after story of Daniel and reminded us that God is in control in uncertain times. And then a couple days later, I went to my church in Lionel Lakes, Minnesota, a small little free church, and, and Pastor Larry said, all right, we were planning on going here, but now we're going to start a new sermon series in the book of Daniel. And for the next 10, 12, 13 weeks, we walked through the book of Daniel. And so my question now is, why in these uncertain times, do we have such a proclivity or tendency to be drawn to the book of Daniel? Why, when things seem chaotic and out of control, do, do people go there kind of like a go-to? It's because every story in the book of Daniel has, every prophetic vision that's laid out has the same big idea. It's this, God is in control. He is sovereign. And no matter how out of control or upside down life feels, God's rule and reign over human history is not threatened for a second. I don't know if you remember last week, but last week we looked at the book of Lamentations and talked about how the book of Lamentations is a gift to us as God's people. A prayer of, of lament is a, is a tool that we should keep in our tool bag when hard things hit. It helps us. It's a prayer that helps us cry out to God in our pain to feel our emotions and yet in that moment when we feel our emotions, to not be ruled by our emotions, but rather place them at the feet of a God who is in charge and who cares. Well, the book of Daniel, I think, serves as a tool for us, but in a little bit different way. Rather than it being primarily a tool for our hearts and our emotions, like the book of Lamentations is, I think Daniel is a tool for our minds. These stories of God's deliverance in the face of incredible opposition and uncertainty remind us that even though life feels out of control, it actually never is. God's got us. He's in control. And so if Lamentations is a tool for your heart, Daniel is a tool for your mind to remind yourself of the great and glorious truth that God's got things, and he hasn't broken a sweat today. Let's dive into our story, okay? Daniel chapter 2. And it's hard to pick a story in Daniel. It's like trying to choose your favorite kid. They're all good, Okay. Daniel was most likely a well-to-do te Jewish teenager who had lived his life in the city of Jerusalem. When Babylon comes in under King Nebuchadnezzar and conquers the city of Jerusalem, the first exile was essentially taking the elites of the city of Jerusalem, the brightest and the best, to the city of Babylon to be re-educated so they could serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar as wise men or enchanters or magicians. And we read a short story in Daniel chapter 1 of Daniel being one of the ones chosen along with three of his friends to be re-chained, re-educated as it were, in Babylonian myths and divination and all kinds of things. And in chapter 2, we see that Daniel has now probably recently com completed his training. And uh, he needs God to show up in another unique way. Let me read. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And they came in, so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell us your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, 
The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. It's a fair proposition, right? Totally reasonable in its expectations. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, in the, its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see th that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanterer or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So this has become a bit of a crisis for Daniel and his friends. Not only are they living in this pagan city that isn't even their home, but now the king has essentially given them a death sentence even though they weren't even given a chance to help. They're kind of guilty by association with the rest of ma the magicians and the wise men. Now, why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? This doesn't sound very reasonable. This sounds like the ravings of someone who has let power go to his head. What is motivating him? Well, we're not sure, but we can speculate a bit. He's had this dream, and he knows that it is significant. He, he has a feeling of, this is ominous. And so he wants it to be interpreted, but he doesn't want to just be placated or or someone make up a definition or an interpretation for him? How is it that he can test whether or not this is real? Now, perhaps he had the dream and then forgot it, like sometimes we do, and was like, no, I need to know the dream and the interpretation. This is important. You guys get paid well. You should be able to do this. Or perhaps he was a bit skeptical that his magicians would level with him and actually know what they're talking about. Or maybe this was another like political game or ploy that maybe the magicians had a little bit too much influence and he was trying to catch them in a game of gotcha. But what we do know is that Daniel and his three friends are caught in this web, and now they're in trouble. Talk about unfair timing. Like, you probably would have wanted to graduate maybe the, the next month, not already, right? The wise men reply, hey, what you're asking is impossible. None of us can do this. That knowledge is only for the gods. This is unreasonable. No king has ever asked this of people before. And that is where it turns, because what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. The story continues in verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
for their other names, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel keeps his head and he buys time. He doesn't throw a fit or go into a rage about how unfair this is, even though it was unfair. He keeps his head, he speaks respectfully, and he buys time. He Why is this edict so urgent? What's going on here that we're all supposed to die? And then he makes an appointment with the king saying, I'll tell him the interpretation. He goes to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and asks, you guys pray. Ask God to reveal to you or to me this mystery so that we're not all goners tomorrow. I mean, you want to talk about bad circumstances that you didn't deserve Daniel and his three friends' life hasn't gone how they planned. Not exactly what they were hoping their life would look like. But in this moment of crisis, what does Daniel do? He prays. He seeks the Lord. The God who knows dreams and the God who rules human history. And we see God answers his prayer. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel's prayer of worship and praise is beautiful, isn't it? This is how he responds, not with going immediately to the king, but with a, God, you are awesome. You are blessed. You have all wisdom and insight. You are in control of all seasons. You set up and you remove kings. I mean, think about that for a second. No president or king or dictator serves outside the leisure of God. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the understanding, he says. You reveal deep and hidden things like the dreams of a crazy guy who expects miracles of his wise men. You know all things, those in the darkness and in the light. I praise you. I give thanks to you for revealing this to me so that I can help the king and I can save many lives. Now, do you think Daniel prays this prayer because God has forgotten those things and God needs to be reminded of who he is? No. But maybe Daniel praised these things because for a time he needed to be reminded of those things. It's kind of like that with us. Our songs, our praise, our worship, our prayers, they truly are a sweet aroma of worship to God, but they're also for us to remind ourselves of what we know to be true And often in the midst of a crisis, that's exactly what we need, to believe what we believe. To read a psalm like Psalm 46 and hear those words again and know that they are true deep in our soul. And then if they don't land simply with reading them, maybe sing a new song about them so that they get from our heads to our heart and we begin to live like it's true. You wonder why we're supposed to come to church week in and week out. It's not because we're weird legalists. It's because I need to be reminded, and so do you, of the goodness of God, because all of us have a tendency to forget what we know to be true. 
Or maybe we don't forget it, but we live like an intellectual truth or reality that, yeah, but we don't actually feel that that's true. We don't relate to God as if it's true. And the longer that I walk with Jesus, the more that I need that to come and sing and pray and remind me of what I believe because something profound happens when we gather. I look over and I see someone singing the very same words that I'm singing, but I know the context of their story and it builds my faith because I know what they're walking through. Now that you can't get through a video stream, I promise you. I promise you. A sermon transfer is okay and for those of you who, you know, you could take or leave my preaching, you could at least listen to it at one and a half speed or something. (laughs) But that gathering of the body that encouraging, that, that, that sense of reminding each other of what we know to be true, of believing what we believe. Guys, we got to gather for that. We need each other for that. And we're encouraged when we do that. Just like when Daniel prays this beautiful prayer, it wasn't for God's benefit. He knew who he was. It was for Daniel's. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went to him and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. As much as Daniel might have had concern for himself, he shows remarkable concern for others, and many of them probably weren't even very nice to him. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. You think Arioch was excited about this? How exciting do you think it would be to carry out an order like this that was completely unreasonable and have that blood on your hands? It says, with haste, he goes in, he says, I found someone. (laughs) The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was the new name that he was given after a pagan deity. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Incredible humility, right? I mean, there's no touchdown dance for Daniel saying, I know, got it, this is what it is. Simply humility saying, God has revealed this to you so that you might know what is to come to pass. And I want you to know that this came from God. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, just blowing away. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone 
that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. This is a long extended metaphor, is it not? Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure." Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his faith and paid, face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But David remained at the king's court. What an interesting story this is, isn't it? See, when confronted with a crisis that he could not handle, Daniel responded with prayer and with faith. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you see something? Maybe you feel something uniquely. Suffering hits you in a unique way, and you ask the question, where is God in the midst of childhood cancer? Where is God in the midst of war? Where is God in the midst of children starving, not being able to eat, parents not being able to feed their kids? The answer to that question is this. God is sitting on his throne ruling over human history. He is not distant, nor is he uncaring, but neither is he, is, neither is he threatened by these things. He is with Daniel and his three friends in their moment of crisis, and he's also with you. But he's with you while sitting on the throne of human history. Nations rise, empires fall, and God tells Nebuchadnezzar that they will continue to do so. 
But one day, a different kingdom will arise. Not from this world. And this kingdom, not from this world, will crush all other kingdoms. In the book of Daniel, we are given a unique window into human history. He predicts with great specificity the next 600 years of human history. In fact, it's so specific both here and in some other visions in chapter 7 and 8 and 9 that most secular scholars assume that Daniel was written at a far later time because no one could know that stuff ahead of time. Unless, of course, God revealed it. See, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue in his dream. And this statue tells us about the next 600 or so years. Artists have tried to, like, capture it for us. And we'll see that the head is of gold, symbolizing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. After him will come another empire of a with the chest and arms of silver, symbolizing the Medes and the Persians, or the Persian Empire. And, and after that will come another empire of bronze, the middle and the thighs of bronze, which is Greece and the conquest of Alexander the Great and the division of his four kingdoms afterwards. And then still after that, another kingdom will come of iron. And with feet of iron mixed with clay, most people think that that's talking about Rome, those who are ruling during the time of Jesus. Now, there's a few other visions that give more specificity to this and actually call out the names of these particular empires. But I think that last kingdom that he's talking about is talking about Rome itself for two reasons. First, that there was a lot of political marriages that held it together in a mixing of a bunch of different peoples. But you could say that about almost any massive world empire. More importantly, though, I think it's the time frame when Jesus, the rock from heaven, comes. The rock that destroys the violent kingdoms of the earth and begins to expand and fill up the whole earth. But here's what I'm sure about, even if the, the details might get a little fuzzy, and I think it's the, the main point of the book of Daniel. All these violent kingdoms look powerful, but they are incredibly temporary until the rock comes. And the rock will start a different kind of kingdom that will endure forever. Verse 34, he describes this rock, a stone cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then all of the, the kingdoms, all of the other precious metals are, are ground to dust and blow away like chaff in the wind. Verse 44, and in those days, kings, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain. Now, if this was the only prophecy fused when about Messiah and his coming, then it would make sense to you why you would be confused when Messiah comes as a Galilean peasant who teaches and performs miracles, but ends up on a Roman cross. I thought he was supposed to crush the kingdoms of the earth, not be crushed by them. That doesn't sound like a rock crushing all of his competitors. Until you realize this is how, precisely how the Messiah does overcome in his kingdom. Not only as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant, bearing the sin of humanity so that his reign for us is good news, not just judgment. See, he wins, Jesus wins, crushing the powers of this world 
by being himself crushed and rising in victory. He wins through losing and ushers in an upside-down kingdom for his people unlike any before it, a a kingdom that continues to grow and expand to this day, but a kingdom who looks at power and authority very differently than the violent kingdoms of this world. See, Nebuchadnezzar is grateful for this insight. He rewards Daniel because he's blown away by God's power in him to reveal mysteries. But if we're honest, he still doesn't get it. I mean, he sees Daniel's God as the God of, king, uh, God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealers of mystery. But he doesn't have a clue who he's actually dealing with. You want to know why? Look one verse later in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. He set it upon a plain in Dura in the province of Babylon, and then he proceeds to command everyone to bow down and worship it anytime the, the music plays. Do you see the connection at all between his dream and the next story? It, it's almost like you want to just stand back and be like, that's what you got? He was like, oh, head of gold. Let's just make the whole statue of gold and then my kingdom will go on forever. But that's another story in the book of Daniel. (laughs) He's heard him, but he hasn't really heard him. You see, the book of Daniel is one story after another of crisis upon crisis for Daniel and his friends. And how God delivered them, showing that he is in control. Whether it was their decision to not defile themselves by eating the king's food and maintaining their their, their ethnic identity. Or this story in chapter 2 with God coming through and revealing the mystery of the dream. Or in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not willing to bow down to this and God rescuing them from the fiery furnace. Or or even Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6 where he doesn't... Stop praying to his God, even though the king made a law like that. He simply does what he's always been doing, and God delivers him from the mouths of lions. See, as we step back, it's almost like we're being shown what it looks like to live as exiles. Do you remember two weeks ago how we looked at Jeremiah chapter 29? Jeremiah's instructions to the people of Jerusalem living in the pagan city of Babylon, instructing them on how they are to live? You're to seek the peace and the well-being of the city. You're to pray for it because in its well-being will go your well-being. You're to be in that city but not of the city. You're to follow and have your allegiance to a different king all while serving the pagan princes of the world. Is that not what Daniel does? See, in many ways, Daniel puts himself forward or the book of Daniel shows him as the prototype of what an exile looks like. This is incredibly helpful for us in that one of the New Testament metaphors for how we're to live in this world and in this day is as exiles. And so Daniel provides an incredible example for us on how to live in a pagan city serving people who do not love and serve God, but where our true allegiance, our greatest allegiance is to another king. But all of these stories and all of the visions that are given both to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel are really showing us one big idea, and that is this. God is in control. And visions like this give us a glimpse of the future, which now is actually history. See, the book of Daniel gives us a gaze into the intertestamental period, the events that shape the world that Jesus himself walks into. 
See, after the city of Jerusalem is sacked in about 600 BC, the Jewish people no longer from that point forward rule themselves, except for a little rebellion under Judas Maccabees. That's where we get the, the, the holiday Hanukkah. That's where they celebrate that. But they endure one form of oppression after another, whether it be at the hands of the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, all who are particularly nasty in their own ways. So that the people of God long for these promises of God to be fulfilled. They had visions of a coming kingdom that would crush all opposition before it. And then in strolls Jesus. No wonder they were confused. And yet Jesus, we see, is the greatest king of all time. And the upside-down kingdom that he brings has endured and will continue to endure until he returns and establishes it fully. Gone are the Babylonians. Gone are the Persians. Gone is the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, but not Jesus' followers. They're still here. And we'll continue to be here. And one day he will return and establish his rule in power. Now you might find yourself in a position of waiting like the people of Jesus' day. You might find yourself today in a moment of personal crisis. Where a country finds itself on the edge of a lot of uncertainty. None of these things change the reality that God is in control. And that there is a different kingdom that will not ever be shaken. Now, here's the application point. I have only one for you. If God is in control, then you don't have to be. If this is true, and it is, God's in control, so you don't have to control your world. And all the people around you will say, amen. See, some of you sitting here today are miserable because your solution to the chaos of this world is to try to control everything and everyone around you. But here's the truth. You're not in control, and you never were. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make real decisions or that you're devoid of agency yourself. That would be absurd. But it does mean that the God who holds human history in his hands and lays it out before it even happens... He is the one that we can look to in our time of crisis. And he will be faithful to fulfill his greatest and best promises. The more that you try to control what you can't control, the more your anxiety will spike. Because you weren't meant to bear that. You're not the king. Jesus is. And that's a good thing. So what do you do? How do you handle the chaos of life? Well, you do the same thing that Daniel did. In humble faith, you trust him. Trust God to deliver and to guide. You latch on to the truths of lamentation in Daniel. Truths for our hearts and truths for our heads. You, you allow the Bible to shape your emotions and your mind, your understanding of the truth. I got a question for you. Are we a truth church or are we an emotions church? Yes. We're for them both. Because God has given us both. And the way that we can express them but also be anchored and tethered to the truth of who God is is a beautiful thing. See, just as Lamentations invites you to feel what you feel and to bring it to God, so Daniel informs you who God is and invites you to believe and to speak the truth to yourself that God is sovereign. He is in control. He can handle things so you don't have to. And that, my friends, will set you free.
Some of you are thinking, but wait a second, Pastor Kyle, I don't know if I can trust him. I get it that he's in control. I get it that he sets up and he tears down rulers, that he establishes kingdoms and he crushes kingdoms to dust. No offense, Pastor Kyle, but that seems rather detached from what I'm feeling right now. How do I know that I can trust him? Because he himself was crushed in order to bring about your deliverance. See, pain and suffering are not to God ivory tower ideals or philosophical realities. They are things that he's actually experienced at a far higher degree than you ever will. And he overcame. See, there are these two truths that we often have to hold in tension, that God is big and transcendent and in control, and that God is near, and he cares, and he is with us in our suffering. And we see these two realities play out in Daniel's life, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life. And these two realities play out in our life. And we find peace not by trying to grab control ourselves, but by trusting him who endured great suffering more than we ever could imagine so that we could be redeemed and restored and called home. Just like Daniel and his prayer to remind himself of these truths, so often we need to do this together. And one of the ways that we do that as a church is we celebrate together the Lord's Supper where we remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. See, just as you need to eat and drink food and drink every day, and that gives energy to your physical life, so as a Christian, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to remember his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. And as you remember that, it's a lot like eating and drinking. It nourishes and feeds your faith, your spiritual life. Not in a magical, mystical way, but in a way that is real and true and beautiful. And so when we gather together, we remember these things. Jesus' body broken for me, his blood shed for me for my forgiveness. And as we eat and we drink, we remember it in a new way. We take it in, as it were. So if you're here today, and you've put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, as we sing this next song, to take this meal together to be nourished and encouraged by the gospel, to look back on what Jesus has done and to look forward to when you get to eat and drink again in the, in the kingdom of God and allow your faith to be nourished and encouraged. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, my invitation to you is, why not today? If you see your sin, you see how you've fallen short of God's standard, the reality is there is no amount of do-gooding that you can do to overcome that reality. You need a Savior. And the good news today is that that Savior has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And he was crushed for you, but he also rose from the grave for you so that if you put your faith and your trust in him today, you have hope of forgiveness and salvation and that today you can join the family of God by faith. Not by doing something, but by believing in him and trusting in him. And so if you're here today and you want to do that, I would invite you to just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in you. I confess my sin and my shortcoming to you. Would you come and be my Lord and be my Savior? And if that's you, you're welcome at this table now to be nourished and encouraged by remembering again. If you're here today and that's not you, you're, you're not there. Can I say I'm really glad you're here? 
In this world with all of these crazy, conflicting ideas, I'm glad that you're actually exploring this reality. And you're, this is a safe place for you to do that. I'm not going to manipulate you or try to like, leverage any kind of decision because that wouldn't actually work. I just want to let you know you're, you're welcome here, but please don't come to the table and testify to something that isn't true about your life. If you're not trusting him, don't pretend that you are. But you are welcome, and I would love to talk with you and pray with you and ask any questions you might have, or maybe the person that came, you came with would love to do that. But, but, but if you do believe, then come as we continue to worship together. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you brought a kingdom that turned this world upside down, that wasn't characterized by the violence and the abuses of power of those that had come before, but by gained power and greatness through serving and pouring your life out. Jesus, we now remember your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you, Jesus. We stand in awe of you. We pray that you would nurture and feed our faith as we remember this meal together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you would come during this next song down the center aisle, grab a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and return down the side aisle as we celebrate this together. Uh, If you need a gluten-free option, that'll be in the middle, but would you come as we sing?